I am glad you're joining me, uh, Jacob, aka Carl Bayer. Is it Bayer? It's Bayer. Bayer. Like, yeah. like, like the aspirin. Yep. I, I guess I'd be honest with you. Like, I, I don't really understand the Carl Bayer thing. Like, it's, it's, it's like it's like a Brockhampton type scenario. Like, it's like a like a odd future block Brockhampton type rap conglomerate, but with like leftist politics, like shit posting. Oh uh, yeah, it's mostly shit posting. So I've had um I, basically the way it works out these days is a lot of different people have the password. Um, and I don't pay very close attention to who is posting. There was a while there where a lot of different people were using it. Um, at this point, I'm pretty sure it's mostly just me. Every once in a while, a couple people will get on there. So like, um, for example, I don't think he'll mind me telling you this. When Will Meneker was suspended a couple weeks ago, he was he posted at least once as Carl Bear because he has the password. Ooh, that's, um, that's so sexy and like mysterious. <laughs> this, this is a, this is like, but I would say like, don't, don't out your, don't out how many people are actually posting, like give yourself plausible deniability. Like oh, you yeah. can, you're like, you're like the Tyler, the creator of Carl Bezier. You want to be like behind the scenes. <laughs> yeah, 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 absolutely. No, I have, uh, um, I am not a hundred percent sure who all has the password at this point because it's just been in circulation. Me, me, so. me either. I, I don't know who has the password to, uh, to my account, uh, <laughs> but I can assure you all the best posts are made by me personally Same. and all all the worst posts are made by a white person um <laughs> probably probably an italian yeah i'm not gonna, I'm not gonna lie uh but you know so just just keep that in mind next time you're yelling at me that you just that it, it's not it's, it's not your, your boy chad it's it's uh uh luigi okay, uh, okay. It's just, just that's just you know a, a thing we i, I want to put out there for the listeners and the viewers <laughs> uh of of the discourse the 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 viewers of the all audio show um my my fans with synesthesia is what i'm trying to say yeah got, got, got a lot of those but anyway like enough of enough of enough about that mm. uh you're on ostensibly, not ostensibly, but actually, I just like the word ostensibly, uh, to talk about your latest piece that is dropping around the same time this podcast is going to drop. Uh, yep. Your latest piece for People's Policy Project, mm-hmm. PPP. Mm-hmm. That's, that's yeah. perfect. All right. Yep. You know, a lot, a lot, of, a lot of plosives there. Uh, yep. God, I'm glad I invested all that Patreon money into this, uh, was it Spit Guard? Oh, anyway. Good call. Yeah. yeah, right. It was just for this episode, baby. Anyway, so your proposal in People's Policy Project uh, mm-hmm. is, you know what? Why don't you introduce it? Because obviously yep. people, like, I'm going to link it in the description, but, mm-hmm. you know, I yeah. think it's good. Most people don't read. <laughs> like, yeah, I'm not going to yeah, lie yeah, to you. Exactly. Like, like, this yeah. is like maybe 50% of people who are going to under you yeah. know be understand your proposal is going to be coming from like just so mm-hmm. explain what it's about. Like, I'll let you introduce it. Okay. So um, it, the actual gist of it is very, very simple. Um, we are proposing that this should be a part of the Green New Deal. If you read the Green New Deal legislation, they talk, they talk very briefly about the international climate problem, the fact that uh, – development uh, to prevent climate change and to deal with all the different problems that are coming with climate change has to happen in the developing world too. Um, This is just because most of the carbon emissions uh, are already coming from the developing world and 90% of the growth in carbon emissions in the future it's actually like 89%. Um, You know, most of the growth is going to be coming from the developing world. So that's the center of the problem, not the United States at this point. We have to deal with that. So the Green New Deal 
briefly uh, mentions this and says a couple things about what the United States role should be in uh, dealing with this problem internationally. And one of the things that it mentions is funding. Just one word in there. I actually wrote a whole blog post about this. It was, I called it the Green New Deal's most important word. Uh, they mentioned funding for international development to fight climate change. Uh, what this paper is about is that one word. Uh, this paper is called the Global Green New Deal. And we are proposing $680 billion every year uh, to the UN's Green Climate Fund to help fight climate change. Uh, so we talk a bit about um, why we need to do this. Uh, we talk a little bit about why the figure is $680 billion, And then the rest of the paper sort of talks about ways that we can provide these funds. Um, because one of the big problems that uh, climate funding has dealt with is the fact that when you get a Trump, Donald Trump in office, he first thing he does is he cuts it off. So Obama gave, you know, in, in the billion dollar range off the top of my head, I can't remember if it was like one billion or two billion. I think it was just one billion. But Obama gave some money to the Green Climate Fund and we were supposed to be giving even more in the future. But uh, in 2017, uh, Donald Trump announced when they withdrew from the Paris Agreement that they also were not going to give any more money to this climate fund. We have to find a way to get around that problem. Uh, we have to find a way to guarantee that in the future, uh, the international community will get all the money that it needs from the United States without dealing with Donald Trump's. So uh, a lot of this paper is about coming up with some financing tricks to make sure basically that there are no take backs, that we are giving them the money and there is no way for the U.S. to cut it off or to take it back. So I, admittedly, I'm no like policy walk. And so I kind of, you know, as we talk about the the paper itself, it's like I do want to I think it'd be, it'll be useful, like the foreground, like something you talked about, basically, like why that number? What are the what are these sort of accounting tricks? Uh, because like ultimately speaking, I think it's useful information for our listeners to have it's information for like people to have when they're conceptualizing how like the mechanics of how it would be done. Uh, but for me, and I think for a lot of people who are listening, uh, I, I'm more interested in the philosophy behind it and also the philosophy that makes it so would make it so hard to achieve. So I guess let, let's just take that in chunks, right? So why 680, why 680 trillion, is it tr not billion. Tr trillion, billion, billion. Sorry. <laughs> that would be, I think that'd be a little bit too much money. Uh, why 680 billion and why and how would we accomplish that when we, like you said, whether you're talking about climate change funding, the, you know, the Paris Accord, or even just basically other types of like funding or civil rights. It's like we have, we kind of exist in this sort of diet, not, we exist in this sort of like this cycle of like, okay, we get a few civil rights for eight years, then we lose them all, or like they, be, they become in jeopardy for eight years, uh, you know, at least domestically and foreign when it comes to like the Hyde Amendment, et cetera, the, you know, the global gag order, et cetera, you know, I guess not the Hyde Amendment, the global gag rule is what I meant. Uh, like basically other parts of the world who we had pledged help towards for a variety of things, they, they just lose large chunks of it. So how do we overcome that? You know, what is your plan to overcome that? And maybe I would also add that you're, the way you're, what you lay out for climate change might be an effective or at least paint a roadmap for how we can get over it for other, you know, in other domains as well. You're okay. Yeah, that's a, that's an interesting question. So, um, 
the you know the sort of abstract problem here i think is that we the way that we think about political progress in this country right now is elect democrats and if you elect democrats then nothing bad will happen and maybe we'll make some progress if you don't elect democrats and you get a republican in office they can destroy everything. So the theory is all of our policy is often designed in, around that way of thinking about it. We design it on the assumption that, okay, this will work in the future if we keep electing Democrats. Um, this paper assumes that at some point in the future, we are not going to have a Democrat in office. Someday we will have another Donald Trump or Someday we will have another Republican majority in Congress. Um, you know, that seems inevitable to me. And so you have to proceed in a way that gets around it. So the best way that I can explain uh, the, our approach to this is kind of with metaphors. We have three different ways of funding. Um, the first way uh, option one, it's a one-time issuance of open market treasury bonds. And that's kind of a fancy way of basically saying the U.S. is going to hand the U.N. a lot of cash. Uh, that's more or less, you know, we actually say more than $680 billion. Um, Our theory up front is $10.8 trillion uh, that we would give to the Green Climate Fund, essentially. Now, we do this through a mechanism of selling treasury bonds, but the point here is that once we've sold these treasury bonds, they're out of our hands, there's no takebacks, um, and the UN just has this money now. Um, so, you know, even four years down the road, if some Republican president decides, I don't like this, well, there's not much they can do about it. They would have to actually like beg the Green Climate Fund to give the money back, and that seems unlikely. So that's the first, and that's sort of the most reliable, like the most guaranteed approach that we have. Second approach that we have is a lot like writing a check. Um, it's a one-time issuance of special treasury bonds. Uh, and kind of the way that this works is, um, we, or, or it's also kind of like an IOU. Basically, um, we are selling bonds that mature at a certain rate, and then at some point we have to pay for, pay for them. Uh, so this is like, it's like writing a check or giving an IOU, essentially, to the UN and saying, okay, well, eventually we are going to have to give you this money. The trick here is that constitutionally, we are not supposed to default on our debts. Um, this came up you know, during the debt ceiling crisis in the Obama administration, stuff like that. Um, and you know, the, it, it, supposedly, uh, this is foolproof because you would actually create a constitutional crisis if you tried to get out of paying this money that we owe to the UN once we metaphorically write the check. Um, that doesn't mean that Republicans won't be willing to cause a constitutional crisis. Maybe they'll decide to. So this isn't foolproof, but it's better than what we have right now. The third idea that we had was uh, just mandatory spending. And that's how we fund things like social security and stuff like that. Um, the way that this would work is basically you write into law that the U.S. is required 
to uh, fund the unit 680 billion essentially as what the way that would work and the only way that you can stop that from happening is if congress uh, actually you know if you have congressional action uh, that affirmatively stops it so Compare that to what's happening right now, where what ha- or what happened under Obama, where basically Obama had to every time he wanted to make a payment to uh, the UN, he would actually have to write that into the budget, and then he would have to get Republicans to agree to pass that. Um, or he could kind of try to you know take a little bit out of places in the budget where there is some wiggle room, some slush funds or whatever. So like he took some of the funding out of the State Department uh, to pay for the Green Climate Fund, but you can only stretch that so far. You can't get $680 billion out. So uh, the approach that we have been taking is that every time uh, or every year when you want to give the UN money, you actually have to get Congress. It's essentially like asking them to agree to it again every single time. And that's not a reliable way to do that. That's not a responsible way to uh, guarantee money. Uh, for uh, the international community because they don't just need the money. They need it to be reliable. They need to know that they're going to have it next year and the year after that and the year after that. So, um, yeah, I can see how this is relevant to a lot of different issues because you have different political uh, problems come up where we sort of assume that the only way the system is going to keep working is if we keep putting Democrats in office. And the problem is that Democrats obviously like it that way. You know, They have a reason to design policy in that way uh, where you have to keep electing them for it to work. So I think that the approach that we're taking here is not the best approach for Democrats if all you care about is electing more Democrats. But I think that it is the best approach if what you care about is solving climate change. You know, when you talk about the developing world and countries that are currently, you know, in the process of developing and they're going to produce the most emissions, I, I wonder if you're able to break that down a little bit in terms of like, is it the government itself or is it like private corporations? Because I wonder where that fits into the conversation about, okay, well, Yes, we know the dominant, you know, the biggest polluters in the world are essentially armies, our army, you know, Nazi's army, the biggest, the biggest soul polluter in the world specifically, right? They, or, but we also know that the majority of of carbon emissions comes from, you know, specifically a hundred companies. So I wonder if this is, you know, the developing nations being kind of this, uh, this bolus of, you know, carbon emissions into the future has something to do with the exportation of jobs over there. You know, you know, like manufacturing jobs leaving America and going to you know developing nation for capitalist reasons, or is this also uh, just like the government? You know, investing in infrastructure of developing nations, which is a, you know, which is kind of you know like basic infrastructure like water treatment, roads, etc. Or is it some mix of those things? And can you speak to that a little bit? Yeah, I think it's all of the above. It's just really it's. It, it, you know, the actual sources of all of the different uh, emissions in the developing world is very, very complicated where everything is coming from. So, for example, um, 
one one thing that has changed is as countries get wealthier, they start eating more meat. Um, that's just a trend that always happens. And of course, meat production is a lot more carbon intensive than just growing rice and stuff like that. So uh, you have this situation where suddenly a lot of people in uh, India or in China uh, are finally moving into the middle class and they start deciding, hey, I want to, you know, change, shake up my diet a bit. I want to start eating some cattle or whatever. Uh, and, you know, what happens then is the emissions go up. So that's like a sort of weird little one of the billion different reasons why they go up. But the general uh, dynamic here is that you have the rest of the world has sort of been looted and looted and looted for decades uh, by what <laughs> what what um, Marxists would call the imperial core. You know, the United States, the global north, or whatever you want to call it. Uh, we've just been looting them for years and years on end. And, you know, global capital has no real allegiance to any kind of country. It just does what it can to make as much profit as it wants to. And so it looks at all of these uh, underdeveloped poor nations and it says, hey, we could, you know, we could build some coal plants here. We could build some roads here. Um, and whether that means starting up a business there um, or whether that means getting the local governments to fund it. And a lot of times that happens because the local governments are taking out loans from the bank or the IMF or whatever and going into debt. And so then, you know, the, it, it, eventually the debt money uh, goes into the hands of private capital and private businesses. And it's, it's just a big complicated mess. But the bottom line is what you're seeing happening here is the sort of the classic, classic imperial dynamic of uh, global capital moving around the world, uh, looting places, and uh, then you know sort of trying to make as much money as they can. And now they're going to they're starting to develop uh, over there, and that's coming at the expense uh, this time around of pumping more carbon into the atmosphere and. That's going to end up hurting everybody. Allow me. I just want to point out. I'm proud of myself. We've been talking about uh, climate and like the globe for about 22 minutes now, and I have not made one flat Earth theory joke. <laughs> and that that is, I, and I've I've transitioned into that talking point off way less before. But you know, just like you know, <laughs> leave leave claps in the the chat for your boy for for resisting the urge to keeping things seriously. But it's keeping things serious. So I'll so I'll just ask you. Uh, you know, when I, I'll just ask you. I have questions obviously um so you make that point so I, i'll play devil's advocate even though i i don't like to even though i love the movie because keanu reeves my my father and husband is uh <laughs> is is in that movie um uh i, I think there's like there is like a, a woke take there right there is like a woke take that you could make against what you're saying right not necessarily the the bones of it again but like the the concept of that it's america's job or it's the global it's the you know global north's job or it's the the you know, western world's job to police the development of developing nations right so you can say hey like the, the, the climate the climate is not fucked up because the global south is developing the climate is fucked up because the global north developed right you know like, like we're sort of at the tail end of this problem now and yeah it's being exacerbated by places like india you know uh of course china um and you know sort of these smaller nations around the around the globe uh but 
the, you know, the impetus is that America is the country, you know, broadly speaking, you know, the West, Europe, the, these countries during the Industrial Revolution were the ones who were pumping coal and carbon into the atmosphere. And now when and now you see and now you see this sort of this this reversal of narratives surrounding the natural resource and natural world. And you say, OK, well, before we were extracting wealth from these places, ex- extracting natural resources from the middle, the Mideast, from, you know, Africa, from uh, from South America. Now that that the world has kind of been destroyed we're like you know now that the world's been destroyed and our country has more or less been left rich although even if you look at the you know the sort of like the world systems imperial core model of the world it's like it kind of leads out the fact that like yeah the global north has been left rich but there are pockets in the global north where that capital has been concentrated and then you have like this weird sort of like layered world systems like imperial core uh periphery and then inside the imperial core you have like imperial imperial core imperial imperial periphery ah, it doesn't make a difference like you know rural areas extracting well to the, the global to like you know urban areas so like there is this argument you say okay well maybe it's not america's job maybe it's not the west job to decide that hey you know uh South America, South Africa, or well not South Africa, but the, you know, Sub-Saharan Africa can't build its infrastructure. They they can't become competitive on the global market just because America has destroyed the world already. If that, if that makes any sense to you, you know, I don't necessarily agree with that argument, but I, I just want to put it out there because I think it's something people could say. Oh yeah, no, I, I I I've heard variations on that take the woke take before. Um, what you've articulated here. Uh, the first thing I would say here is the. Developing world has asked us for this money. Um, this is not a situation where we are imposing. Uh, we are necessarily imposing our will. We can. There's obviously good ways and bad ways that this can play out. But the bottom line is that you know um, when they're first forming the Green Climate Fund, the G77 developing countries asked us for four hundred billion dollars. Um, and, you know, we whittled that down to 100. And then, you know, in the end, Obama gave something in the range of 1 billion before that got cut off. So, it, you know, to a certain, this, this isn't necessarily us just imposing our will on the rest of the world. This is us doing what they have been begging us to do. They're begging us for funding. Um, and, you know, the reason it, it's pretty straightforward why they are begging us and why we need it is because we are the empire and we have been gathering capital within the United States and within Western Europe and within the OECD, um, you know, and so, yeah, of course they need this money. Um, So, you know, the other point I would make here is that what we are proposing is um, we aren't necessarily telling them how to spend it. We are giving this money to the Green Climate Fund, uh, which by international law uh, is governed by the developing world has 50% representation on the Green Climate Fund's board. Um, So, you know, this isn't like a Security Council situation where you have way disproportionate uh, or veto powers uh, over everybody else. This is something where the developing world has asked us for money uh, and now we're giving it to them and we're saying, you know, spend it as you see fit. Uh, That is, I think, sort of the general way to conceptualize it. But the other point I would say here is imagine um, imagine sort of development over the last 200 years playing out in the best way possible. 
uh, where you don't have this imperialism problem. You have something that's a lot more fair. Well, what I think you would see happening is you would probably have maybe, you know, less carbon intensive development in the United States and in uh, the global north. And you would have a lot more development going on in the global south. Um, unless you're, you know, unless you're a primitivist and you think that there shouldn't be any development whatsoever, uh, it would just be even across the board. Well, what's happened here is that we have unfairly, you know, we have unfairly done all of the development ourselves at the expense of everybody else. Uh, we have uh, used more than our fair share of carbon consumption. And so now what we are saying is, uh, you know, you guys, you guys have the right to develop and we want to help you do this in a way that's not going to kill us all <laughs> with climate change, because um, that's that to me seems like the only sort of sensible way forward where we acknowledge, yeah, we do owe you a lot of money. We owe you hundreds of billions of dollars a year because we've put all of us in this position. Um, and, you know, for the love of God, please don't spend this in a way that ends up uh, baking us all to death uh, in climate. In well. I don't know. I like getting baked sometimes. <laughs> uh, uh, no, all joking aside, I, I guess so. Then my next question is relating to like this is obviously your your paper. You know, this proposal is you know it, it's a play on the the Green New Deal, and you mentioned at the beginning that currently the Green New Deal doesn't really have an internationalist component to it. Right, right now it's focused a lot on domestic ways to you know curb the curb carbon emissions in America and sort of reduce you know plans to sort of I guess get back on the Paris Accords and like work towards reducing uh you know the rise in global temperature from let's say. I don't know, two degrees centigrade to one degree centigrade, ideally to make, you know, down to like none, no degree centigrade. But that seems unlikely based on what the ICC uh, P had put out. I hope I get that right. And that's not the insane clown posse again. Um, <laughs> but no. Uh, so, so, and obviously at the Green New Deal, as it stands right now, it's even vi viewed as too radical by some of the more establishment players, right? And I think that, of course, you know, the Green New Deal is being weighed against just like both like, well, weighed against nothing, right? Because we have to be honest, if America is the main exporter of one thing, it's like gun or two things like guns and climate change denial, right? Yep. Yep. And part of climate change denial is like, you know, you have the outright climate change denialists who have kind of moved from saying like climate change isn't a real thing to the climate change is in a thing that's human that's, that's human caused to it may be human caused but we don't know by how much so like well we can't really do anything about it uh you know and like and scientists can't really tell you like the you know basically playing on the epistemic doubt or the volatility of statistics to be like okay well scientists claim they can tell you like the temperature is going to rise by three degrees over the next you know 30 or 40 years but if you actually read their paper they don't know if it's three degrees or if it's going to rise by five degrees or it's going to rise by one degree and through like and it's like okay well obviously you know both you and i and ideally listeners now once i say it are like like the difference between like a one degree centigrade rise in temperature and it's like is life it's all life on earth it's like, all, like, like, like that's how, like the climate is, is uh is is delicate you know in some way some ways it's very it's very adaptable it's very delicate 
and then you have I would just to add you have like softer forms of climate change denial, which I, I would which I would include like you know climate change stalling or even like the people who are arguing that that climate change could be fought on the individual level. Like the best way to not you know that not the best way to you know fight climate change is to not run your AC or to not or, or to not you know on a personal level not eat meat or on a personal level like not have children versus like the actual structural changes that you're laying out in that the Green New Deal is laying out. So I think that we have a sort of a layered issue here where you have people, you know, you have people who have been conditioned to think about themselves on the individual level, right? Like, you know, that you can affect change on the individual level, which is kind of like a byproduct of the neoliberal mindset. I think we can both agree that, you know, like that individualism, that rugged individualism is like, oh, I can change the world personal. My personal decisions is a very conservative mentality. And then you have, you know, people who think that climate change can adequately be fought on the domestic level. Like, okay, like if, as long as America is doing what it can do, it does, then we can sort of, you know, we can like we can affect broad scale change around the world, which is slightly true. But I think it, you know, it lends itself to a version of climate fighting climate change that allows for certain certain nationalistic takes that are not conducive to it. Like, you know, we can fight climate change, but we can also be stoking war with foreign powers, yeah, you know, yeah, which, which, yeah. Which, doesn't, which doesn't really like those two things don't work together. Well, I mean, you had... Um uh, Warren's uh, green military proposal, right? Which sort of ran into that trap where her idea was, yeah, we can fight climate change and we can also have this military at the same time that, you know, she talks about throughout the actual language of the bill, talks about readiness and talks about preparedness. And then you look even closer to see, okay, well, what is the military gang ready for here? What is, are they supposed to be prepared for? And, um, you know, they're hinting about stuff like, okay, well, we're worried about Russia, worried about China, and we need to maintain lethal force and stuff like that. Iran. Yeah, 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 yeah. They mention Iran uh, in, uh, in this text too. It's, it's incredible. The text just flat out lists out nations that we're worried about. <laughs> and so, um, yeah, you do have this problem with the way that we've been talking about the Green New Deal, where people are still just way too self-invested and not just on the individual level, as you said, but also kind of on a national level where we're just very focused on this being a domestic problem, problem in the U.S. And even when we talk about international development, a lot of times the first question is, well, what's in it for us? So Jay Inslee has this plan um, modeled after the Peace Corps where they're going to go around the world and do expertise exchanges and stuff like that. Um, and he's promoting this as, well, yeah, it's going to create jobs and it's going to do all that. Or you have Elizabeth Warren's um, you know, recent plan where she's talking about creating this whole green export industry um, that's also, again, going to create jobs and all that. And it's like, yeah, well, we're doing all this by profiting off of the people who we've put in danger and who we've put in poverty all of these years and who are now just trying to catch up uh, and you know live the life that we've been enjoying for so long. And I think that it's, it's important you mentioned a lot of stuff. It's like it's important to to note that historically speaking, like climate science didn't really take off. Well, I mean, it's, it's been around for over 100 years now at this point. You know, people have been talking about the coal emissions and the problems that it causes for like the climate and like, you know, extreme weather patterns for, I guess, almost 100 years now. People can point to like articles in uh, scientific magazines from, you know, over 100 years ago. But, you know, like the like. 
up until like once the Cold War ended, we sort of got a, a really we got a better understanding of the fact that, oh, well, we actually need to be able to fight climate change on a global level. We have to have access to like global weather patterns. You know, we can't be constricted to like just the weather patterns of our, you know, of our allied countries. We can't we can't you know, we can't be constricted. We can't be both, you know, perched on the edge of war and also you know, prepared to like adequately combat climate change. At the same time, you know, people pointed to Elizabeth Warren's global, you know, sort of green imperialism plan, which is, you know, what it was called. And that is, you know, it's like it's tongue in cheek, you know, and some people like their big criticism was like, hey, you know, but, the, you know, if you're looking at pound for pound in terms of like carbon emissions, it's like the U.S. military is the largest polluter on the world, in the world, like, you know, more or less. And it's like, that's one issue with it. But it was also like, you know, you're right. Her plan was framed in this, the language of like, well, climate change, according to the DOD and according to like Pentagon is a national security threat. Like the climate changing is a national security threat. And, but that's not really a novel take on like the, on, on like on essentially on climate or net or rather on national security as it relates to like natural resources that relate to the government. Like, you know, the entire idea, or rather, let me back up a second. Um, you know, you talk, a lot of times people talk about, uh, like human rights as being a grift, like human rights, you know, human rights, America's exporting human rights and democracy is a grift to justify imperialism. It's like, yeah, but like national security is also a grift. And so export security and it's always in it, the, the whole national security discourse are like evolved, like post world war one to justify taking oil fields from fucking the middle east it's like and so like using that language to justify like you know more or less a, a sort of a green military or so justify like greening america like to me that's like that's too close to justifying eco-fascism or eco-imperialism and that's you know to be more specific yeah and it's also just like when you're making a law it's also just one of the vaguest things you can say. So Warren had in her green military bill, she had all of these different uh, waivers that basically said uh, if the person who's on the government side who's making this contract uh, decides that doing this in an environmentally friendly way would be a threat to national security, then you can just then just never mind throw this whole bill out pollute as much as you want like she has these waivers in the law and you know a threat to national security or endanger national security or whatever that is extremely vague that can mean anything like the you know supposedly every single thing that the department of defense is doing is supposedly in the interest of national security so if it, it, it uh, you have these contractors, these contract officers uh, in the Pentagon deciding whether they're going to give these people a contract and they can decide, oh, yeah, well, yeah, this this is a threat to national security if we don't get this contract. So let's just go ahead and throw these climate rules out the window. Um, and it's so, yeah, just as a matter of like, you know, it's it's funny because Elizabeth Warren is totally selling herself as the candidate of policy right now, but that is just such a classic policy loophole in Pentagon regulation, uh, this national security clause. She has to know that. like She has to have known exactly what she was doing, that when she put those waivers in, she was giving the Pentagon an out on a silver platter to get out of it. And politicians just do that because they're afraid of being accused of being soft on national security they just 
that's that's why waivers like that are in there in the first place. Yeah, I mean, it is. And it's also it's frustrating for me. And I guess we'll talk a little bit about Elizabeth Warren, like, you know, her policy, her policy bona fide. It's not really bona fide because she is she is by all, you know, not by all kinds. She is a wonk. I'll give her that. But that's kind of like a value neutral thing. But I will just say this is, like, you know, it's obviously, you know, couching climate change and finding climate change of national in, in, in the language of national security, uh, you know, couching the acquisition or the maintenance or the preservation of natural resources, whether it be like the climate as a natural resource or like individual natural resources like lithium or gold or oil. It's like it's never ended well for any for like for the global south. And, you know, there is this I think there's this weird naivete on the part of like certain people as to like what are the climate change denialists? What are your sort of Brett Stevens of the world? You know, what are your like, you know, your alt-right thinkers of the world going to do once like it becomes impossible to deny climate change anymore it's like okay well they're going to become eco-fascist yeah it's like eco-fascism you know neo-malthusian thinking is already so deeply ingrained to our culture that like it feels like every you know i see a lot of bad movies so i feel like almost every movie i've seen that's like a big blockbuster like the villain has been an eco-fascist of some sort it's like godzilla the villain was eco-fascist or like you know eco-terrorist but they were really just like eco-fascist were eco-fascist um you know, Thanos is an eco-fascist. Uh, Black Manta and the, like the the villains of Aquaman, the uh, Atlanteans were eco-fascists. It's like they're all eco-fascists, and the reason they're eco-fascists is because, and this is going to sound kind of silly, but they're eco-fascists because, like, eco-fascism, the idea that the, that the Earth is being polluted, which is definitely true and definitely a worthwhile cause, but that the solution is to kill large swaths of the population, is something that that resonates as like a justifiable thing to so many people, and it's just like, of course, the large portion of the population that get killed are always like the poor people which is why you know when you say you know uh the re like the reason why the climate is bad people are having too much children it's like well yeah but like a, a mother of seven in sub-saharan africa has the carbon footprint of like a, a single a single person in manhattan it's just like you know that's just, that's just not how the world works yeah yeah it's uh, it, i mean and you know you're pointing out here this is not this is not just something you see on the right you see this on the left you see this sort of crypto malthusianism all over the place where um you know the burden is being shifted you know you get these weird populations arguments coming up and stuff like that. And the fact is, if you look at what would have to happen with the world population for it to be making big impacts on climate change, for it to happen fast enough to make a difference, you can't just wait until people naturally die out. Something's going to have to change. Um, so there's there is this implicit eco-fascism in uh, this concentration on population levels. And it's just, it's so unnecessary because, yeah, you obviously can't, you know, the earth only has so, so much of a carrying capacity. Um, but we know how to solve climate change. Like we know what needs to be done and it doesn't necessarily involve depopulation. Uh, we just have to be willing to do it. We just have to be willing to redesign our cities and we just have to be willing to make the investments in global development and technology and stuff like that. But it, it, that shit is expensive, dude. It's $680 billion expensive. And, you know, I think it's much easier, much more realistic to go to Mars. Uh, <laughs> well, it's it, so, you know, the thing the thing is, yeah, it's a huge price tag. There's giant sticker shock here when you look at it. But, you know, 
you you shuffle around money, you move money out of the military budget, you close some bases, you get rid of uh, you know these subsidies for fossil fuel companies and stuff like that. Um, and I think that it becomes a lot more plausible pretty quickly. Uh, it it's just a budgeting problem. You just have to sit there and you have to be willing to decide. Okay, you know what? We're going to cut all of this unnecessary stuff that we don't have. And one of the things um, that socialists are going to have to fight for, if they're going to implement this global green new deal, is to make sure that it doesn't happen at the expense of social programs in the U.S. Because it doesn't need to. You can get this money out of the military budget alone. You don't have to cut, you know, social programs or things like. That. You know, I mean, I agree with you, right? And I think that when you talk about sort of the neo and crypto Malthusian, you're talking about like a hegemonic thing that is in some ways related to just like the broad, you know, a broad neoconservatism that exists within our culture that is in many ways like people don't reflect upon because, you know, because it's easy to point to like John Bolton or like David Frum or like any number of like, you know, big in neoconservatives who are like obvious promoters of like racism abroad, imperialism, uh, you know, et cetera, et cetera, xenophobia. Uh, and not realize that, yeah, they are big in like neoconservative proselytes of like the global empire. But then there's sort of that baseline of like neoconservative racism, xenophobia, like America's the best country in the world. Uh, like, you know, foreign countries are somehow inferior. You know, people, even like, you know, even if it, as it manifests, it's like people just want to come to America. They, you know, uh, like, like refugees, they just, they just want to be here. It's like, you know, like those, those narratives are, are sort of, they infect all aspects of our political spectrum without, you know, unless you're actively engaging with them and with some sort of anti, you know, internationalist approach to socialism, internationalist approach to like the world, broadly speaking, or like anti-imperialism. But, I, you know, I'll also just, you know, add, I think that partially what you're talking about too, you know, your paper lays out the sort of the bureaucratic mechanisms that people would have, that we'd have to go through, you know, but I think that there's also, like you said, this mass movement aspect of it. There's like, there's this, like, this requires not only sort of a shift in, you know, a budget shift, but a shift in the way we conceptualize the, you know, the, the world, right? Because I, I think a lot of you talking about, you know, there's like, there isn't a, there, there isn't this sort of scarcity of resources that people, at least not the way people pretend there is, whether you're talking about the climate or like natural resources or the ability to develop as a resource, right? Or like food, like scarcity in some ways is manufactured by capitalism, but people believe it's a real thing. And so like just shifting people's perceptions, like, hey, no, like there is ways for people to develop that doesn't require destroying, that doesn't require destroying the climate. I think is an important aspect of this where like, you know, it's not, it's not an end or, it's not an either or thing, it's an end both, right? You do have this idea out there that they, U.S. is only going to be able to take really dramatic uh, action against climate change uh, by making huge sacrifices in the population. And there are some leftists out there that almost seem excited by that prospect and they say like, yeah, you know, we, you, you, you shouldn't want to protect your standard of living and things like that. But in this case, that's just not the trade-off that you need to make. Like there's no actual basis for believing that your average poor or middle-class person's life is going to have to get appreciably worse at all just to get the $680. 
No, I, I agree with that. Cause I think you're right there. Like there is this sort of like, there, there's a middle ground between like anarcho primitivism and like full luxury gay space communism yeah. that like, where it's like the full luxury gay space communism. We've talked about this on, on my show uh, in prior. It's like, it, that is more of a pipe dream. Like, you know, even like the Star Trek universe, you have to question where they're getting like these resources from. Yeah. Like you have to, you have to question, like, you know, they still, they still have to, you know, matter replicators aside, they still have to sort of respect the laws of physics. So like they must be strip mining country they may be they must be strip mining planets right like you'd, you'd have to be strip mining planets you'd have to be strip mining maybe like asteroids or something asteroids etc like you know they, they've they've, been, they've managed to export their you know their you know they managed to export their natural resources needs and like sort of their their, their reckless consumption to like the a universal scale you know which is one it's just a thing but i think that you're right in the sense that you know there are certain aspects of I think socialism and on America, like the left in America that doesn't want to concede that like, yeah, if we were to be a communist country or a socialist country or just like, you know, any sort of non-sectarian far left country uh, and respect international, like an international sovereignty, right? Respect the international regulations and sort of respect the borders of the places that we currently extract natural resources from, like, things would look a little different, right? You know, like the idea that, the idea that we would have like iPhone 10s and you know, but we would be respecting the countries that we get those materials from. It's kind of ludicrous, right? You know, and also just like just speaking sort of with the climate, like the lifespan of some of the technology we use is just it's just it's not feasible. Like it's, it's, it's just uh, but 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 that's not what we're talking about here, right? I think that's like that's a worthwhile critique that hey, you know, international socialism, you know, caring about the climate would require some sacrifices, broadly speaking, but not in this not in this circumstance, right? That's just a different conversation. I I'm I'm not entirely. I mean, so so much of our unsustainability just comes from extremely stupid ways of living um, that, you know, just waste like planned obsolescence in our economy, in our technology. That's just extremely stupid. And that's purely a profiteering thing. And if you get rid of that, then instantly our economy is significantly more sustainable and it doesn't deteriorate your quality of life in any way. In fact, it probably makes it a little better because you don't have to go buy a new iPhone in two years or whatever. Um, Of course. So I, yeah, I'm not too, I'm not too worried about the, um, the trade-offs here in terms of uh, standards of living and stuff like that. I think that we absolutely can afford $680 billion a year. And I don't think we can afford not to pay that. So, Of, of course, definitely. I mean, I, I, it's like, a, even if that is the case, it's more of like, you can keep your doctor or you can, you can keep your healthcare plan sort of scenario where it's like, yeah, if you can't keep your healthcare plan, if you can't keep your iPhone 10, there's probably a good reason why. Mm-hmm. It's like, because it, yeah. it's so, it's yeah. so deleterious <laughs> that it gets, that you really shouldn't have it in the first place. It's bad. It's bad for you. Don't worry about it. Uh, but no, I, I think that you're, you're right in that sense. But I think that the sort of zero sum game mentality of like, okay, well, if we do X, we have to do Y. If we do like, it's easy to fall into that trap because of, you know, like I said, 40, 50 years of like neoliberal indoctrination. Like there's no, like how many people like they're, they're, you know, are ostensibly like not necessarily on the left, quote unquote, but like consider themselves to be center left, you know, liberal Democrats who like, there's no free lunch. It's like, well, 
theoretically no but that's like but society that's why we have societies so there so, so we can like we can we can spread out the cost of lunch to the point where it's almost free yeah well right? i mean yeah, it's, you know it, socialists don't believe that there's a free lunch we just believe in making the rich pay for it like we, we you know we're not um th- this isn't a issue where we're being naive about economics and the cost of fixing climate change we are just saying hey let's actually do this in a sensible way marx actually talks about this um marx is in one of the key passages where he's talking about uh it, that sort of forms the basis of eco-socialism uh he says that the sort of main obstacle to um a sort of eco-socialist you can say an eco-socialist approach to our planet is the fact that we can't collectively manage it so he says we can't collectively manage agriculture is what he talks about because you have this private property you have uh, the world divided up into a billion different parcels that are controlled by a billion different people and so we can't all come together and think of a sensible way to deal with issues like this instead we have to work around around all of these rules of capitalism that say, okay, well, you aren't allowed to raise taxes this much, or um, yeah, we might be able to sort of lay out this this community better if you you just let the stream stay where it is and capitalism says, no, we have to build a dam. Uh, stuff like that. It's it's capitalism that causes a lot of our problems when we're trying to manage this world in a sustainable way. It's not a resource issue where we're just running out of resources or something like that. Yeah, it's it's a it's a management issue, and capitalism, or rather, you know, capitalism as the economic plan. And I guess you know, capitalism. And this is the technique you use: capitalism, neoliberalism, kind of interchangeably. You know, uh, it, it, you know, it is it is neoliberal. It's it is capitalist impulses that can like that that like that are affecting people in the sense that it makes neoliberalism, neoliberal management of resources seem like the only way they could possibly, or rather, the most efficient way they could possibly be managed. And you know, what was the Mark Fisher quote? It's it's easier to imagine the end of the world, or in this case, like moving to mars than it is to like imagine like hey you know like maybe like maybe just maybe we should invest 680 billion dollars in like you know it's sustainable infrastructure or sustainable infrastructure program uh, moving to mars is really on your mind here isn't it i you know i think about it because like it, it's it's like we i think that we have yet you know, we've yet as a society to come to grips with the ways in which modernity has failed to live up to some of its uh, its promises. And like, and, that, and that's been framed in the sense of like, well, we don't have flying cars, but like flying cars are fucking useless. It's like, it's more of like, you know, I think that when you come talking about modernity, you talk, you're talking about high technology and the sort of the values of the enlightenment. And we, we don't really talk about like the ways in which modernity has led us to a, a point, or rather it's been insufficient to solve just basic sort of, not only insufficient, but has actually exacerbated basic social problems that we have. And like, so like, I think that when you're talking about late modernity, you're talking about high technology and high technology seems to be like everyone's solution to every problem from like, again, resource management, which is just this, which is we're talking about climate to like racism or sexism. Like if we can just, if we can just inject technology into the conversation, we can, you know, we can fix these problems. And just, I mean, even thinking about like, you know, it was, Sorry, this is a little bit off track, but it was like it was the anniversary of D Day a few a few weeks ago. Last week, 
as time so it's you know d-day is like the, the anniversary of d-day is like the one day of the year that like the far right pretends to care about and hating nazis it's just like you know it's like as though most of them like aren't like secretly watching like you know 420 cuck youtube videos and like and dying for a retweet from like you know sargon of akkad or at least they were years ago uh it's like so one day pretend to care about nazis but like even the way we conceptualize like the holocaust and the world war ii and like the you know all those things it's like it's been treated as though it was an anomaly of modernity an anomaly of like capitalism anomaly of sort of the system that we have like currently or at the time when really it was like more of just like an excess like there is like this whole genealogy that led up to the holocaust and that that, that sort of like the base the things that constructed the base and the inspirations for the you know concentration camps and genocide and you know the war machine the companies that contributed to the war machine uh like you know like ibm that like then none of those things were dismantled instead we kind of just pretend like it was like it was just a bad a really really bad thing that happened that could never happen again because we learned from it but really we only learned a very very specific lesson and we and now we're you know we're living in the age of trump the era of trump and you know i think we're coming to grips with the fact that the way we the wish we teach the, the lessons of world war ii the lessons of the holocaust were so specific that they weren't really transposable or instructive because now if, if something doesn't look like literally a nazi people can't you know determine it's fascism or they can't determine it's a concentration camp we spent like what four weeks trying to figure out like the definition of a concentration camp it's like that's <laughs> it's like if like like if like and became very clear like well no one learned anything because we've taught this we've, we've we put this in a little bit of a bubble and i think that you know and if i'm going to loop it back to the conversation about the climate you know talking about the the discrepancy between people wanting to fight on the individual level versus like the domestic level versus like the global level it's like those levels aren't little discrete units right it's like you know like i think that one of the biggest myths of the democratic party or liberalism or neoliberalism or centrism you can kind of view the interchangeably in this kind of context at least in my opinion is that like the world can exist in these like little discrete like pockets that don't affect each other really like you can have good domestic policy but bad foreign policy that you can fight climate change on the domestic level but pollute on the global level and in, in the world will be fine and like that sort of and that, that's really infected people's minds. And I'm sorry. Go ahead. Oh, no, 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 no. I think you're, I mean, you're right. And that's one of the things that I have in mind in this paper is I'm, you know, I, I have international governance in mind, just not national governance. That's one of the reasons why I want to get this money out of the U.S.'s hands as completely as possible. I think that's one of the first things that we have to talk about when we talk about the international solution to climate change is you just, it's so many, like all of our presidential candidates, the, the ideas about dealing with climate change are, okay, well, what is the U.S. going to do for everyone else? And I don't really see much more of a role that we need to play than just Give them the money they've asked for, that they're begging for. Let's start with that. And then if we do that, then we can start talking about others. I mean, that, that assumes that they are capable of governing themselves and also like managing money. You know, but, but you know, it, it implies self, you know, uh, self-agency, essentially. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like, Which a lot of people have. don't like to assume at all. Like, of course. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's either that or like, you know, we do geoengineering, which is like the, it's like the, the high technology solution. Like we, we, we build a machine that pulls carbon out of the atmosphere and I don't know, that does something with it, which is like, 
the the, the high tech Elon Musk solution. There's actually, I mean, there's there's some um, interesting and promising stuff out there that they're doing with that. But you obviously like you don't want to put all of your eggs in one basket. Like you absolutely, I mean, the good news is they've actually done studies on this, and what they found is that if you talk to people about uh, geoengineering and say hey, we're in this really bad situation. We might need to do one of these crazy moonshot solutions to fix things. People don't decide, okay, yeah, let's do that and not the other stuff. What they decide is we need to do everything. Uh, you know, if you tell if you tell somebody we need to do geoengineering, what the study found is that they also their support for other ways of fighting climate change also goes up. So I don't think that we need to necessarily talk about this as a trade off. I think that we should talk about this as all of the above. I'm quite happy to argue for putting a lot of money in tech investment uh, just to see if we can come up with a tech fix of this. Because I'm telling you what, I'm scared of this. I think that it's a very real possibility that we are not going to fix this thing. And I think that we have to be willing to do whatever it possibly takes. Uh, you know, if if that means pouring some money into some moonshot pro carbon capture project or something like that to fix it, then let's do it. And let's fund the global Green New Deal too. Yeah. Happen. I agree that it is totally true that reliance on tech fixes has played this really reactionary uh, role in the way that we talk about uh, climate change. But we don't have to let it. That's what of I would say. I yeah. mean, we're not, even, we're not even really. I guess my my point of it, like, we're not even really funding that kind of thing. It's like, like at least not to the degree that we would need to make it a reality. Like, it's it's more it's more of like a, it's more of like a ledger domain thing. Where it's like, oh well, I, I'm sh like I'm sure science will solve it at some point. Like the free market science, like like ill. So, you know, again, like those sort of like those, those, those beautiful uh, fetishes or both beautiful idols of modernity, like the free market and science will solve this problem. It's like, okay, well, it, you can have a scientific solution, just like you can have a bureaucratic solution, but there has to be a social component too. You know, it has to be like a, a change in the way you think about the way you like you're engaging in the world. I will say, I will, uh, uh, I will compliment you on like on the way you pivoted back talking about your paper. That was very professional. You're, you're, very, you're very skilled at this. And I was definitely with you when you said we got to get this money. That was that, that, that spoke that spoke to me like as on a, on on a visceral level but you know you know even if we're gonna sort of i guess we can you know we can pivot a little bit um i i mean i, I could construct some sort of like this some sort of like very smooth pivot into talking about like you know Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders and and Joe Biden, the sort of Democratic primary. But I respect my audience too much to like make the, for them to like not realize I'm just like pivoting. So I'm just going to pivot shamelessly because we, we brought them up. And I think that, you know, climate change is going to need to be a big, a big component of the Democratic primary. And I guess the the, the general election as well. You know, and I think that we've seen already if, if Jay Inslee is to be believed uh, that the Democratic, you know, Democratic, uh, I'm sorry, the DNC is not really you know they're not really taking this as seriously as you would imagine like the leftist science party would take it right and we know that historically speaking there hasn't been like forget a climate change debate right there hasn't been like a, a significant line of questioning about the climate for the past what two three election cycles uh you know at least they, i don't know if, if they've even used the word climate change more than like a handful of times over the past few election cycles you know at the presidential level and so like 
it's interesting the sort of the the sort of plans and lack of plans that we're hearing from the candidates in terms of the climate which and by lack of plans i mean like 17 of them don't really care and like the other three are like jay Inslee, bernie sanders and elizabeth warren and then you have like only one of them is kind of like super into it and from a, a standpoint that for me from my i can get it behind yeah or joe biden ripping off uh other people's climate plans <laughs> i mean you know, joe the, biden is a, is a plagiarist and i, I just I, <laughs> you know like uh, the joe biden like the only woman joe biden is not willing to touch his mother earth right yeah you know, let's, be, let's, be, let's be honest <laughs> it's like at this point like you know i, I don't want i want to i don't want to be i don't want to like just harp on his like weird handsy nature but he makes it hard not to yeah because <laughs> like, he just doesn't it, stop making it's jokes just still happening He's it's still, still happening. doing this. It's like it's like everyone's like, okay, you know, maybe this isn't, you know, like your everyday average American doesn't find Joe Biden to be handsy. And I, I agree with that. Like, I talk to people all the time. They're like, oh, Joe Biden, you how Joe Biden, you know, like he's just an older guy. Yeah. And then you have like, the, you know, you have people who have like, who are like, you know, those women, they just like, you know, like they like they like they probably just liked it. But then they, but it's from me as like a person who has to like see like him in public on like on my Twitter feed. So it's just like not not only is Joe Biden like sniffing people's hair still, but he's also making like weird, gross like a, a self self referential comments about yeah. it now, which is like okay, that's, that's even worse. <laughs> that well, I guess no, that's not even worse. But it's it's dumber in a way, just because he's acknowledging, yeah, people are aware of this problem and people have a problem, and then he's basically coming out and saying, yeah, and I think this is stupid, a stupid controversy, and I don't care. That's what he's telling people every time he makes a joke about this. It's just reprehensible. It's just absolutely outrageous that this guy is getting any support at all. But I guess I mean, he's coasting. He's coasting Obama's coattails. Yep. Honestly, yeah. Like, I, I mean, Joe Biden was a not, not to be mean, but Joe Biden was a D-list lawyer who became a C-tier party function, like functionary. For like the it's, path. Like, it, it's going to be really. I haven't really talked. To, I mean, heard much talk about this. But like, what are people saying that Joe Biden actually did as vice? Vice president like what are his big achievements at, with obama as vice president so like i think people look fondly back on to the vice presidential debate versus paul ryan uh you know as like him kind of like just schooling paul ryan and, and i will admit in that in that vacuum joe biden was like I, I was cheering joe biden on but at that time i was i was a little bit dumber about politics and i think that like he he kind of was able to garner this pot this sort of this this weird public image as like kooky joe uncle joe biden uh and i think for your everyday average kind of like you know party functionary like your your everyday average liberal like like they like like they're like their interrogation of his record is going to be based on this kind of weird this because weird notion of pragmatism and i think that i think the democratic party has managed to like to to construct for themselves in like and when like when their record deviates from like what you would expect it to be right i think that you know you have like your democratic party you know like the, the, the liberals like the the far left base you know like your cultural democrats and i think that when you look at it like your everyday average democratic voter is probably further to the left instinctually like than like your your party establishment you know, like your Joe Biden's or Nancy Pelosi's or Chuck Schumer's. But I think that like they've been conditioned over the past 30 years to believe that like when their party deviates from like, hey, why does why is there not like a moral red line about Democrats supporting like supporting abortion rights? Why is it that like two years ago Kamala Harris was like jailing black like single black mothers? Like why like why is it that like weed is still illegal and there's still so many black people in like in jail for nonviolent drug offenses? Like why, you know, like why did Joe Biden write the crime bill? Why, you know, why did you know why did 
Hillary owns slaves. It's like they've been able to construct them like those choices as like as the result of pragmatism. Like, oh, well, in the post Reagan era, uh, we would not have been able to win any seats if we didn't, you know, if we didn't pivot to the right on, you know, and become tough on crime and become tough on national security, you know, become the Republican Party. Like we did. That was just the name of the game in politics in the, you know, the early 90s, you know, late 90s, uh, early 2000s under Bush. And like once the Iraq war was in full swing, you just had to be, uh, you know, Republican, like uh, light. But I think we now have seen over the arc of history that they lost anyway. Like, you know, like they, 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 you know, the argument that all these choices they made uh, regarding the economy, the Wall Street bailout, the, you know, the, the tough on crime, the tough on drugs, the tough on, like, you know, the being willing to put sort of Social Security on the table, uh, you know, being willing to cut sort of like Medicaid, being willing to cut all of these like social programs in pursuit of like Republican approval or just getting anything done. It's like it didn't lead to them winning any seats. It led to them being marginalized at every level of government. And now they're trying to claw their way back and they're trying to claw their way back just on the 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 strength of trump being generally unlikable uh but you know you have people like joe biden which which is which is why i like joe because like you know the rest of the democratic you know party primary uh you know primary opponents are essentially running from their record they're that they're, they're running like you know kamala harris is out there talking about how she loves sex workers and loves stonewall and loves single black mothers and would never put anyone in jail and really she'd never even heard of of the state of california <laughs> uh, if you think if you think about it uh like they, like you know and like the media wants you to treat them all like they're all fucking brand new yeah uh, yep. but joe biden you know, Joe Biden doesn't even have the good sense to like run from his record or or like, you know, either by couching it in the language of like pragmatism and regret or even just like not acknowledging it. Like he like he gets out there and like and, you know, you have people like I was it's funny, people like Jabari, uh, not Jabari. Fuck. I would say I was say Bakari Sellers, who's just like, I don't agree with every part of Joe Biden's record. But, you know, like like he's learning and he's like, you know, and he's a brand new person. Then like Joe Biden, that's like, I ain't learned shit. Um, I ain't ever did anything wrong. The crime bill was great. Black people are savages. And so like, <laughs> like and, and like Anita Hill can go fuck herself yeah and like everyone is like you're you're, you're supposed to pretend that you're sorry well, that's, that's the thing about this um democratic pragmatic psychology about it is you would expect them if they're going to do this to be really sort of reluctant and be like yeah we really didn't want to go to you know we didn't want to keep troops in iraq for as long as we did but we just it's embarrassing we hate this but we absolutely had to do that no you never have that psychology what you have is now nah, it was super smart to keep him in iraq for as long as we did and i would have been willing to keep them in for longer if that's what it took because we're being savvy and we're not caving into the idealists and stuff they're very proud of their pragmatism in a way like in, in a perverse way you know like you it, if you're gonna be politically pragmatic about it at least be a little embarrassed about it and ashamed like it be be disappointed and be like, man, I did not want to sell out like that. But Joe Biden is not like that at all. He is proud of everything he's done. It's just 
it's remarkable to watch him. It's remarkable to watch him sort of just torpedo that narrative and like the media who had, like, rather not the media, but the Democratic aligned, Democratic Party aligned punditry not be able to, not be able to pivot from that narrative that they've been conditioned to spout, which is like, oh, like, you know, like, like the Democratic Party didn't want to do this. They just had to. Like the number of people who I've said, like who have said to me online, I'm like, when I say, okay, well, they're, but the past 30 years, all they've done has allowed like the, you know, even if they had said, let's say they still lost all the seats, but they had held their ground on like everything from like social programs to like, you know, actual structural anti-racism. They might have still lost their seats post Reagan, but at least the conversation would not be starting from a point where it's just like people can't even conceptualize a world where like public policy is an effective method for like solving social issues. And I, I, I've mentioned this before, and I guess I'll mention uh, this will be how we pivot into Elizabeth Warren. It's like, you know, people talk about Elizabeth Warren losing and like or not doing as well as she should be doing for a, a large variety of reasons. And I think, that, you know, the fact she's a woman, the fact that she used to be a Republican, the fact that she, you know, she like a lot of people were disappointed by her not coming out, you know, for Ber- not coming out for Bernie or not coming out to run specifically in 2016. All of those, I think, range in level of viability in terms of like how reasonable it is for you to feel that way and to not like her because of a reason. Even like the whole Native American, like the weird rollout where she offended Native Americans and then, like also claimed she wasn't on antipsychotics for some reason, which was weird. But like, I think it's really important if we're going to sort of like situate her, situate her candidacy like in the history of Democratic Party to acknowledge that like the, the kind of policy heavy candidate, candidate she's running as is not really legible to the modern like democratic party base like they're just not conditioned to think about politics in that way anymore it's like and and that was a that was a strategic thing that the democratic party did post reagan to kind of to kind of disguise the fact that they had abandoned you know wide sweeping public policy as their primary mechanism for negotiating why they're betting the Republican Party like and they replaced it with bullshit but they're not even good at that it's it's hard honestly for me it's hard to tell because um it, like what you see sort of in the discourse and the media discourse and on Twitter and social media and stuff like that the people who are on there are just you know extremely wonky and they and they are sort of an unrepresentative slice of the population they're more educated than usual and stuff like that like they are more interested in policy than most of the democratic base and you have like so many people out there who seem to like Warren precisely because it makes them feel like their policy wonks too. So, you know, they're like, yeah, she's put, look at all the proposals she's put out. She's done this and she's done this and it's so detailed. And I'm a person who really cares about policy um, and all that. And so I think there is part of the democratic base that really is into this stuff. And it's very weird because um, I, I forget who pointed this out, but somebody noted that when I published uh, that recent Jacobin piece on Warren's green military thing, it was it took her very seriously, her her policy seriously. I went into the text of her legislation, and it was it wasn't even a, a critique of Elizabeth Warren per se. It was about her policy. It was about her law. Uh, I took it very seriously. I talked policy. I talked the details and the legislation legislative mechanisms that were going on and stuff like that. And people did not like that. 
at all. Like people were the the very same people who uh, you know claimed to be very interested in policy suddenly were sort of talking about it as if it was very unfair and pedantic for me to be uh, gang into the meat of her legislation and pointing out these little things. They're act, acting like I was being nitpicky about it. It's very the stuff that comes out as soon as it, you know she'll announce she'll roll out a new policy. Uh, on Twitter, she'll tweet it out and instantly you'll get like a million people being like, brilliant. This is like so good, you know, and they obviously haven't even had time to read it. Of course. I mean, I mean what, it, what it comes from is that like, you know, it, all it takes, at least for me, was like, not all for me, but like also like just it's like the the people who like the, the people like, in that sort of weird media, like left adjacent media class who like Elizabeth Warren a lot. They like her because they realize that the people, you know, the far left Bernie supporters, like, I guess, well, I guess we know we are in some senses, are very critical of the system that they are part of. It's like I think Elizabeth Warren supporters, they, they, they can all agree that big tech is a problem, like Mark Zuckerberg is a problem, that Elon Musk is a problem, that, you know, that, that uh, Jamie Dimon, uh, Goldman Sachs, all the big bankers are a problem. But that's where their analysis of the system ends, like at, at, at those eccentricities where I think they actively understand, at least at a subconscious level, that the supporters of Bernie, like they include like that weird sort of, you know, a political adjacent media class as part of the problem. Like they're part of that sort of weird centrist, you know, the top 10% of the country that, yeah, they're not multi-billionaires, but they traffic in the same circles and provide cover for those multi-billionaires or their lifestyles are, you know, not necessarily unsustainable, but they like the professional they, managerial class. Yeah, personal managerial mm -hmm. class, but also just like the the pundit class. Mm -hmm. The pundit class helped get us into this problem, and they are not going to be spared by the the Bernie supporters if he gets in the office. Like there's going to be there's going to be a reckoning and accountability that they aren't necessarily in favor of if it subsumes them. Well, yeah, I mean, I I generally agree with your take there, and I guess you know what I would say to sort of bring this full circle is I'm very interested in seeing if we can actually get a candidate who we can push on climate change um, and on the international funding issue specifically, because I think that the only way that this gets done is if we get somebody who is being held accountable by a mass base, who's willing to take a very big political risk because they know that they have to. Um, and you know that's another reason why I back Bernie Sanders is because I can um, sort of imagine in my wildest dreams him being pressured into having to back something, maybe not even at the scale that I think that we need, but something much, much larger. Whereas, you know, I we've already seen the kinds of proposals that Elizabeth Warren is getting behind for climate change. And it's not the kind of proposals that we need internationally. And it's not at the scale that we need internationally anywhere near uh, the scale. And so that alone, you know, if you have if you have two issues that you care about this election, that one of them I think has to be universal health care, and I think Warren fails that test too. But if you have one issue that you care about, I think that's probably got to be climate change. And I think that um, on those grounds alone, I think that we probably have a better chance of pushing through something resembling a global Green New Deal with Bernie than we do with anybody else. Well, I agree. 
And I thank you for joining me. And I'm going to put all of your information in, in the description. But why don't you close out by telling people where they can find you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I am um, on Twitter. My name's Carl Bayer. Uh, and you can visit my site at www.carlbayer.com. It is not spelled like it sounds, so you'll just need to look at the description uh, to you see you don't, how spelled. You need you need to overpronounce it to make fun of how I, I mispronounced <laughs> in the beginning. Beijer, yeah, it has beige, a J beige, in there. It's like, a, like the color. It's the beige. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's an old Swedish name, apparently. Um, I have a, I have about. a speech impediment, sir, and so making fun <laughs> yeah. of me on my own. Show. I just wanted to get in a little bit of ableism there, right at the very, very end. Don't move nothing, statue. Shoot about to go nuts, cashew. Need cash off the books, pass through. Real cheese for the cooks, rat food. He got drums for that ass, get fucked. Get your face rearranged, nip tuck. Dude heavy in the streets, big truck. Get money, get money, that's a stick up. Your wallet of your life, choose one. Come up off the lettuce, crouton. You been sleeping on the shooters. Futon. No donation on computers, move on Clerk shitting in his drawers, skid row Thought shit was just a hood game, skip rope Shooter read the face real quick, cliff's notes Kiss the shoe with the 4-5 mistletoe Shooter, 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 shooter You don't want it with a shooter Shooter, shooter, shooter Cause he got guns and the shit go bang Yeah, the shooter brought guns and the shit go bang Hands up, got guns and this bitch go bang Motherfucker better run when the shit go Hanging off the rooftop, King Kong Bullets serenade the streets, theme song Ain't taking no hits, clean bomb Just needed him an outlet, three prong Tired of putting in work Weekend, now we getting this shine sequin. Silence on the gun barrel, cause he's sneaking. Found a spot the pigs can't get to and vegan. Look at all the folk running, marathon, like they ain't got baggage, carry-ons. Killing is the best medicine, diagnosis. Got death on his breath, halitosis. Chopping people like they veggies, top chef. Like a game at a carnival, wide cleft. Think you're playing, just watch. Timex, cameras roll, cause he hot now, Pyrex. Shooter, shooter, shooter. Shooter, you don't want it with a shooter. Shooter, shooter, shooter. Cause he got guns and that shit gon' bang. Yeah, the shooter brought guns and the shit go bang. Hands up, got guns and this bitch go bang. Motherfucker better run when the shit go. Got a towel on his face, mop head. Getting money in the desert, hot bread. Wish he had a way home, breadcrumbs. Drank himself into a coma, red rum. Soldier's eyes playing tricks, sandwich. Need to get more info, bandwidth. Bunch of signs there to read, pamphlets. But that was not to be Hamlet. Enemy jumped on his back, monkey. Wasn't leaving no scraps, junkie. He was waving his hands, crumping. Whole body like soup. Dumplings, waving AKs at him, step team, finna blow his ass away, jet stream, leave his brain in the sand, head trips, caught his ass on demand, Netflix. Shooter, 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 you don't want it with a shooter, 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 cause he got guns and that shit gon' bang, yeah the shooter brought guns and the shit go bang, hands up, got guns and this bitch go bang, motherfucker better run when the shit go. go, go, go.